The title of today's sermon is Reckless Faith and is found in the book of Luke, chapter 18, verses 31 through 43. Bless the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. We might have eternal life. I want to thank Mike, first of all, for the song. Thank you. I want to thank Bud for preaching for me and for Andy heard great things about both of your sermons, so thank you so much for standing in my stead while I was gone. It's good to know that you have men that you can place your confidence in and that will serve the Lord with a whole heart. Would you bow with me as we prepare our hearts for the Word of God? Father, we thank you for this day, another day to breathe, to move, to live, to serve you, to worship you to bless your holy name. Help us, Father, as we look into this text this morning to see what you would have for us. Speak to us through this ancient book that is so relevant to our lives today, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. For just a moment, imagine you're a fly on the wall listening to a conversation between Stevie Wonder, the great recording artist, and Tiger Woods, one of the winningest golfers of all time. What would these two very different men talk about? Surely Tiger would compliment Stevie on his repertoire of hit singles like Superstition, For Once in My Life, Fingertips, I Just Called to Say I Love You, My Sharia More, and Isn't She Lovely? Perhaps these two men are just sitting around a pool talking when Stevie compliments Tiger on his 14 PGA Tour victories at the Masters, the U.S. Open, the British Open, and even his Rookie of the Year award. The conversation, having turned to golf, finds Tiger surprised to learn that Stevie, despite his blindness from birth, has played golf for years. Tiger can't believe it, and he presses Stevie for details. He asks, how do you play? Stevie explains, my caddy stands out in the middle of the fairway and he calls out to me. And I listen to his voice and I hit the ball towards it. When I get to where the ball has landed, my caddy moves further down the green and shouts out and I hit the ball again. Of course, Tiger's quite impressed. But wonders, no pun intended, how do you putt? Stevie describes the action. My caddy situates himself right behind the hole, his mouth just over the cup, and he calls out to me, and I play the voice, I play the ball in the direction of his voice. Amazed, Tiger impulsively asks, well, can we play around together sometime? I'd like to see this for myself. Stevie's overwhelmed by the offer and tells Tiger there is just one condition if that's to happen. Since most people don't take him as a serious player, He would want to play for money, say $10,000 a hole. The winner could then designate the monies to a charity of their choice. Tiger is excited beyond all else, and he's serious about winning these Benjamins. So when can we play? Stevie thought about her for a moment and replied, Anytime. You pick the night. Now, I share this with you to introduce our topic for today, blindness. If there is one of the five senses that most of us would not want to lose, it's our sight. 
Now, some may disagree with that, but I don't think anyone really entertains the thought of being blind. The last time I was with you, I spoke about blind spots in our spiritual lives. You'll recall the illustration I used, the car accident I was involved in that week and the blind spot that I had. The Jews didn't have cars, but they certainly had blind spots. One of the blind spots was revealed in that Luke chapter that we studied when I left. And it's a key to understanding the whole gospel of Luke. In Jesus' childhood, you'll remember that he was raised in the town of Nazareth. Well, he returns to Nazareth as an adult in the middle of his ministry. And we find what's recorded of that visit in Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. You don't have to turn there. Let me read it for you. It's one of the keys to understanding the gospel of Luke. Jesus came to Nazareth, says the text, and it, it was the place that he had been brought up. And as it was his custom, he entered into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet was Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. But some were saying, Isn't this Joseph's son? So the Jews immediately rose up against him and pushed him towards the valley of Armageddon. And we read in the text, All the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, and they got up and they drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill in order to throw him off the cliff. But Jesus passed through their midst and went on his way. You see, the Jewish people had a huge blind spot when it came to what they were expecting in the Messiah. They were looking for a conquering hero who would free them from the oppression of Rome. Now, Jesus claimed to be that fulfillment, the fulfillment of all their hopes and dreams. That's why he read this messianic passage that morning in the synagogue at Nazareth and applied it to himself. This infuriated the people, causing them to rise up against him. They just didn't have a blind spot when it came to this concept of the Messiah. They were blind to spiritual truth. All of us need to be aware that we too can become blind to the spiritual truth found in the scriptures if it differs from our preconceived notions. Not only were the religious elite and the regular people of Israel blind to truth, but this blindness had infected the disciples of Jesus as well. This, then, is a warning, the text that we look at this morning, to believers of every age to beware of spiritual blindness in your life. Please turn with me now to Luke chapter 18, where we will pick up in the Bible at verse 31, where we left off, and you can find this text in the Pew Bible on page 1047, as mentioned by Bud. Let me remind you of the setting. Jesus has just finished a conversation with a rich young ruler, who I argued was a believer in Christ as the promised Messiah. 
His desire was to go deeper into the abundant life that was offered by God. But because he held so tightly to his riches, he was disappointed and left. Now Peter will later on speak for the twelve, reminding us that they too suffered such blindness in their following of Christ. Even though they had willingly sacrificed family and home and professions, processions for the kingdom of God, they still were blind to spiritual truth. And yet Jesus had told them that he would reward them beyond all of their expectations. Now we come back to our text and pick up, pick up where we read in verse 31. He took the twelve aside and he said to them, Behold, behold, we are going to Jerusalem. And all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Here is Jesus' third warning about future events. He gives these warnings to his disciples. Now, before I get into the specifics of the warning, let me remind you of chapter 9 and verse 51, which sets the tone for the rest of the book of Luke. There, Jesus tells the disciples, the 12 in particular, that they are on their way to Jerusalem. They were going to Jerusalem for a very important purpose. Now, since Jerusalem is located on a hill in the mountains that divide Israel, it is always spoken of as going up to Jerusalem, no matter where you are coming from. As you can see on the map behind me, the very top, uh, can you give me my pointer, Susan? It's, it's in that box. They've traveled from Galilee, and they've come down through Perea, and they're going to go across here into Jerusalem. Once they get to Jerusalem, they're going to have to climb the mountains to get into the mountainous area where Jerusalem is at. So no matter where you are in Israel, you're always going up to Jerusalem. Looking at the map behind me, you can see the geography of Israel, which dictated the path that Jesus and his entourage would have to take from Galilee to Jerusalem. One would leave Galilee and go east, and you would head into the Decapolis and down through what is called Perea, and coming directly across from Jerusalem, you would have to pass through Jericho, which is about 17 miles away from the city of Jerusalem. Now, the reason that they would not just go straight from Galilee to Jerusalem is because of this region called Samaria. The Samarians were considered unclean, and no Jew would enter into Samaria because it was filled with pagans. So they traveled south. They crossed the Jordan River and recrossed it when they came to being directly across from Jericho. And from Jericho, it would be a straight shot all the way into Jerusalem. Again, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, according to chapter 9 and verse 51, which said, He departed to go to Jerusalem, for the days were approaching for his ascension. He was going to be ascending to be with his father, following what he has now predicted three times, his crucifixion, and his rising from the dead. 
This is the third time that Jesus has shared the death, burial, and resurrection of himself as being a future event. On each of these occasions, he reveals to the disciples exactly what would happen, and on each of these occasions, he gives more information about these events. Here, for the first time, Jesus explains to his followers that once they reach Jerusalem, he will ascend to his Father. So then, the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the more information he shares with his disciples. As I previously said, there are at least three predictions of Jesus' passion found in Luke. Now, some exegetes think there are many others. The three main passions mentioned are in 9.22, and right here in chapter 18. But some believe there are veiled references also to his passion in chapter 5, 35 through 45, in 1250 and in 1725. But what should be noted is that Jesus has resultantly set his face, I can't say it, determined to go to Jerusalem. The King James puts it this way, which is easier. He set his face towards Jerusalem. For it was in the city of Jerusalem that the prophets of old had been persecuted and killed before him. So Jesus is on his way, just as the previous prophets had, to suffer and to die in the city of Jerusalem. His suffering and death had been predicted by these same prophets of old. We know of those predictions. We all have seen them on our Christmas cards. The prophets predicted the Messiah would have to, be, would have to suffer, be betrayed, then die, and then be resurrected. For example... We get the first hint of this in the pro, Proto-Evangelum, which is the first mention of the gospel in the Bible, which is found in Genesis 3.15, where the Lord says to Satan, I will put enmity between your seed and the woman, and be- between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He, that is the Messiah, shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. King David also writes of this in, Psalm, uh, in the book of Psalms, of one that is greater than himself who would suffer and die. For example, in Psalm 22, Psalm 41.9, and Psalm 119, we find Davidic predictions of the death of the Messiah and his resurrection. I'm sure you're familiar with the graphic descriptions of Jesus' passion found in Isaiah 53 and also Zechariah chapters 9 and 11. So the point is that all of these events which would take place in Jesus' life in just the near future were predicted beforehand by the prophets of old. Peter will later write of this in his first epistle in chapter 1 and verses 10 and 11, speaking of the disciples' blindness, saying this, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now, beginning in verse 32, Jesus articulates the gospel of grace to his disciples in specific detail. In doing so, he predicts his own death and resurrection. We read there that he will be handed over, Jesus says. He, speaking of himself, will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And then after that, scourged, and they will kill him. And on the third day, 
he will rise again. Jesus makes it quite clear that he will be given to the Romans and that he will die. This is the first time, however, that it has been revealed to the disciples that he would ascend. Now here we find five clear predictions of future events. Those things that would take place in Jerusalem, the place that they were traveling to, Jesus makes it clear, first of all, that he will be delivered to the Gentiles. Secondly, that he will be mocked and that he will be spit upon. Thirdly, that he will be beaten or scourged. And that's, by the way, this is a practice only the Roman army did. Fourthly, Jesus predicts that he will be killed or crucified, as Matthew says. And finally, he predicts that on the third day he will rise again from the dead. This is the most detailed prediction that Jesus shares with his followers. It also reflects an intensification of his emotions as he progresses towards the place of his death and his goal of accomplishing the Father's purposes. Let me ask you, can you imagine a clear, more vivid picture of the events that took place in Jerusalem to Christ? Of course not. Jesus spoke in the clearest terms possible. He reiterated what the prophets of ages past had already said about himself. And yet every pious Jew rejected this truth. And in verse 35, we read that the disciples had the same blindness to spiritual truth that the religious leaders in Israel had. Luke inserts in the text here, an editorial explanation of what the disciples were thinking when he says, but the disciples understood none of this. And the meaning of these statements were hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said by Jesus to them. Notice, three times in this verse, Luke tells us that they didn't get it. They didn't understand anything. It was hidden from them. They couldn't even interpret it or comprehend it for themselves. Why couldn't they understand this? Something that had been revealed not only by Christ to them, but by the prophets that came before him. Why didn't the disciples get this? It seems that they just couldn't cognitively understand it. They couldn't wrap their minds around what Jesus was saying. In other words, in other words, in other words, they did not believe the gospel of grace. They could not believe what Jesus was telling them, that he was going to die, that he would be buried, and that he would be resurrected. They didn't understand how this could fulfill the scriptures, for they were still thinking. They were still believing that Jesus would bring in the messianic kingdom immediately. You see, they had accepted the normal religious beliefs of the Jews of their day. And they had no room for a suffering Messiah. Their tradition told them that Jesus would come, or that the Messiah would come, and that he would, he would vanquish the oppressors of the Jewish people. That made it impossible for the disciples to fit a square peg in a round hole. The disciples just couldn't compute that the chosen one of God would have to face such suffering and death rather than victory over their enemies. Their expectations of the promised one got in in the way of spiritual truth. Their Messiah was sent to physically deliver them from their enemies, not to be put to death by them. 
Now, the most difficult of all the statements found in verse 34 is the phrase that it was hidden from them. Grammarians try to explain this by saying it is a paraphrastic perfect passive in the Greek language, which means Jesus was teaching them about a future event that made no sense to them, but they would later understand. The reason they didn't understand it is because they were not ready to receive it. Their good news was different from the good news in the future. Their paradigm was different from the paradigm in the future. They had been taught something completely, utterly different about how to be right with God. Now, it seems quite obvious to me that the disciples were not saved as we understand it. Please give me a a moment here to explain. They were not saved as we understand it. And to understand the gospel in in those terms is to do violence to the text. The gospel that you and I believe in had not historically even happened as of yet. Jesus had not died. Jesus had not been buried, nor had he risen from the dead. Verse 34 states that they completely missed the truth of the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They couldn't understand it or discern it because it hadn't happened. It was historically a future event. The disciples of Jesus were not saved in the, in the way that we think of it. They were believers under the old economy. They believed the promise of a coming Savior, and they believed that Jesus had fulfilled that promise. The essence of the good news of his passion was hidden from them completely. Why? Because it hadn't happened. It's hard for some of us to understand as we look back, but clearly the disciples thought of salvation or being saved as a temporal deliverance from the power and the oppression of Rome. They hoped Jesus would set up his messianic kingdom right now. And so they flatly refused to entertain any other prophetic timetable. Even we today believe what we want to believe rather than the clear spiritual truth found in Scripture. We oftentimes resist the truth of God because it doesn't fit our preconceived notions of how God acts or works. I know many people who say they believe in forgiveness. But when it comes to practically applying it to another who has injured them, they flatly refuse to do the will of God. It's because their prejudices keep them from comprehending the meaning of the words of Christ. I'm reminded of the recent incursion by mad Vlad Putin into the Crimean region of Ukraine. This was clearly predicted beforehand by several of the political talking heads, and yet it was rejected rejected outright by many in the world of politics and certainly by the mainstream media. Look at this clip. When you were asked what's the biggest geopolitical threat facing America, you said Russia. Not Al-Qaeda, he said Russia in the 1980s are now calling to ask for their foreign policy back because you know, the Cold War has been over for 20 years. Russia, I indicated, is a geopolitical foe. Not a, number not, one. Excuse me, it's a geopolitical foe. And I said in the, same, in the same paragraph, I said, and Iran is the greatest national security threat we face. Russia does continue to battle us in the UN time and time again. I have clear eyes on this. I'm not going to wear rose-colored glasses when it comes to Russia or Mr. Putin. Yeah. 
after the Russian army invaded the nation of Georgia, Senator Obama's reaction was one of indecision and moral equivalence, the kind of response that would only encourage Russia's Putin to invade Ukraine next, to invade Ukraine next, to invade Ukraine next. These talking head Republicans were accused of having an 80s foreign policy, yet they clearly predicted that Mad Vlad, the former KGB colonel, would invade the Ukraine, and that has come to pass. Why? Because the present administration flatly refuses to accept these notions that we have enemies in the world. The mainstream mocked the assertions by Palin and Romney and failed to give consideration to their political paradigm. So the current administration and the mainstream media were blinded to the Russian threat, which seems so obvious to others with a different worldview. I share that to say this. It's the same thing with the Jewish elite and the Twelve. They were blind to the good news because of their Judaistic worldview. They couldn't understand something that lie outside their paradigm. It just didn't compute. They couldn't visualize what the prophets said and the teaching of Jesus coming to reality, and yet it does. So the Lord implies an illustration that we find in verse 35 to show them their spiritual blindness. He shows the Jews and his own disciples that they are blind to spiritual truth. Look with me at verse 35. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, as Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting in the road begging. Here we find Christ, the Lord Jesus, and his large entourage of the twelve and other disciples, and pilgrims moving from Galilee down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, going to Jericho. As I said, it was 17 miles away from the city of Jerusalem. Now let me stop here for just a moment and explain a seeming conflict, or two seeming conflicts, that many people find in this text. They look at the three different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the Synoptic Gospels, and they say that there is a, despair, there's a, there's a, a difference here between the three stories. I find the differences totally uh, able to be reconciled rather than uh, to finding some kind of a conflict or a mistake in scriptures. Such conflicts should be approached and resolved by looking carefully at what the text says through the hermeneutic of the gra- literal grammatical historical view that uh, we believe in, or literal interpretation. Notice Luke states that they were entering into Jericho. Literally, it says Jesus was approaching Jericho. The other two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, both say that Jesus was leaving Jericho in apparent conflict in the texts. How do we resolve that? Secondly, the three Gospels also differ on the number of blind men who were healed. Mark and Luke state that there was one blind man. Matthew states that there were two blind men that were healed. So is the Bible in error? Is there a conflict between these gospel accounts? Is there really a problem here that we need to delve into? The answer to that, of course, is no. To resolve any conflicts, we just need to look at the Word of God and accurately understand it. For example, historically, 
Remember I said literal, grammatical, historical interpretation? Historically, did you know that there are two Jerichos? Did you know that these two Jerichos lie right next to one another? The first Jericho, as you of course know, was destroyed when the Israelites, following the command of God, walked around the walls, and the walls did what? The walls of Jericho fell down, right? As it states in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 36, listen to this now, Joshua made the Israelites take an oath, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and rebuilds the city of Jericho with the loss of his firstborn, and he shall lay its foundations with the loss of his youngest son, and he shall set up its gates. So the old Canaanite city by the name of Jericho was left in ruins and was cursed by God. Anyone trying to build or rebuild would suffer the loss of their firstborn and of their youngest son by divine punishment. Now, these pictures that uh, are going to be put on the screen are of Jericho that were taken by me when we were there last year. That's the spring of Jericho, which it is noted for. The next slides you can put up, and there are more pictures of the spring. And go ahead. And go ahead. There should be one more. Is there one more? One more? Okay, there was one that I wanted to show of the old city of Jerusalem lying in um, ruins. No one rebuilt Jericho until Herod the Great tried to rebuild it. Certainly, Herod, being no fool, understood the curse that was placed on anyone who would try to rebuild it. So he built a new Jericho, about one mile away from the ruins of the old Jericho. This site for this city was really important because it was the place of an oasis. There was a natural spring that flowed there and caused palm trees to grow, and it was a great place to spend your vacation, and Herod rebuilt his summer home in Jericho. So then, there are two Jerichos, the old city of Jericho in ruins and the new city of Jericho built by Herod the Great. Just a short distance apart, maybe a half a mile to a mile. So when the Lord necessarily passed through Jericho, he had to walk through the old city of Jericho, which is the one Matthew and Mark focus on, and then he would have entered the new Jericho, which is the one that Luke speaks of. Now, depending on the author's perspective, whether it was whether Jesus was leaving Jericho or entering Jericho, it would depend on how they saw it. So then the conflict is resolved. The second supposed conflict between the Gospels is Matthew states, as I said, there were two blind men, while Mark and Luke mention only one. Mark even gives his name as Bartimaeus. So as you have guessed, might have guessed, blindness was a huge problem back in these days. In fact, many children were born blind. Other folks, through disease, through the environment, blinding sun, or through accident, became sightless. One city in Israel had a saying, everyone in town is either blind or only has one eye. Another city recorded in its census that out of the 5,000 people living there, 500 of them were blind. It was such a problem in Israel that the Lord commands in Leviticus 19.14 that the Jewish people must care for the blind. And yet, 
blindness carried a terrible stigma in Israel, both culturally and religious. You'll remember in John chapter 9, I hope you'll remember this, that Jesus' disciples asked him about why this man was born blind. Was it his fault or was he blind because of his parents' sin? You see, the Jews believed that if anyone was blinded, they deserved it. The result was that in their culture, you can take that picture down, the result was the blind were ignored and scorned by other people. So here we find this man whom we know was named Bartimus from another gospel, is sitting along the roadside having been relegated to a life of begging, begging for his mere existence. Mark also tells us that Bartimaeus was dressed in tatters or rags, so clearly he was begging on the road. So this blind man sat on the road all day long in the hot sun waiting for a handout, a help, if you will, from the kindness of others. He had nothing else to live for. He had no hope of an improved state or a better life. And then Jesus passes by. Now Jesus is going to use this interaction with Bartimaeus to illustrate the change which has taken place between the economies or the dispensations, if you will. Jesus will show the change from law to grace, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the rigid paradigm of offerings, temples, and priests to the one to the mediator of one to the one mediator between man and God who had made one sacrifice for all time. A change, in other words from religion to relationship. This illustrates or is a figure of the spiritual condition of Israel as well as the disciples who reject the truth of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes that the God of this age has blinded the minds of men so that they cannot see the light of the gospels. Clearly, the disciples were blinded to the truth that Jesus' mission was to die and rise again. Now, we shouldn't become all puffed up with pride because we do exactly the same thing at times. We reject clear biblical truth often in our lives because we have blind spots and because we're blinded to spiritual truth. Now, in the text, Jesus is leaving old Jerusalem and entering into Jericho and entering into new secular Jericho when a blind man speaks up. He hears a crowd going by, says verse 6, and he inquires as to what is this? This is a crowd. And who's in the crowd? Well, let me share with you that I believe there were three elements in this crowd. First of all, there were the Jewish pilgrims, the regular Jewish people coming from Galilee, making their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Then there's the group traveling with Jesus, his followers, the 12, and the other disciples. And lastly, there's a group of people sitting on the road begging. There are many blind people. There are many handicapped people people sitting there looking for a handout as the procession passes by. Sitting in this group are many blind beggars looking for a help. So the second conflict is resolved. It's not Bartimaeus by himself or two blind men, but possibly 10, 12, 15 blind. 
There's not just one blind man, but many. And in verse 37, someone in the crowd told Bartimaeus that it was Jesus of Nazareth who was passing by. As you recall, I opened this time together by referring to Luke chapter 4, where Jesus asserts that his mission is to announce that the kingdom of God was at hand. The kingdom of God is near. He did this in his hometown synagogue at Nazareth, and he quoted from the prophetic text of Isaiah chapter 61, which gave specific details about what the future Messiah would do. And one of the things that the future Messiah would do was he would give sight to the blind. And yet the people of his hometown completely rejected him in the spiritual truth that he brought. In fact, they tried to kill him. Why? Because they were spiritually blind. Now the blind man sitting there and waiting for someone to meet his needs with a hand uh, sees clearly who Jesus is. He's not just Jesus of Nazareth because he shouts out to Jesus in verse 38 saying, Son of David, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. How did blind Bartimaeus figure out who Jesus was? He was told he was Jesus of Nazareth. He could have been Jesus of Lacey, Jesus of Jerusalem, but he was Jesus of Nazareth, just a man by those words. But Bartimaeus must have heard about the reputation of Jesus. He must have known about his ministry in Galilee. He puts two and two together, and he figures out Jesus is the one who has fulfilled the messianic promises of the prophets. How do I know that? Because he calls Jesus the son of David. That's a messianic title that's found in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Daniel. And and because he asked Jesus, notice, what does he ask for? Have mercy on me. Such a request would not be made of just a man, but it would be made of the Messiah. Note the irony which drips from this verse. It's not the crowd not the twelve, not the other disciples, and certainly not the Pharisees who see Jesus as he really is. They can't identify him for who he really is. That is the son of God, the son of David. And yet this blind man who sees clearly and better than all those who are sighted, he was blind. He was blind, but he could see. He knew that the whole nation of Israel should have embraced Jesus, but they missed it because they were spiritually blind. Jesus was the fulfillment of the promised Messiah who came to give mercy to Israel. You see, if Israel had embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, he would have freed them from foreign domination and from sin. If they would have welcomed him, he would have answered them. But the only one who asks him for mercy is this blind man. And how does Jesus answer that? Or why does Jesus answer his request for mercy? It's not because Jesus loves all people. That's a a notion that liberals have fostered, fostered upon the word of God. Jesus is a loving God who cares for all. He'll just just, uh, heal anybody at any time. That, my friends, is a bunch of malarkey. 
If Jesus really cared for all the handicapped and all the blind in Israel, then why didn't he heal them? Why this one blind man? If we take that criterion to evaluate Jesus' ministry, he's the biggest hypocrite that ever lived. Because there were probably a hundred people sitting on the road to Jericho with some malady that needed to be healed. And yet he heals Bartimaeus. Why? I believe the reason is twofold. The answer to that is twofold. First of all, he healed Bartimaeus to fulfill the scriptures. To fulfill the scriptures. As I said, it states in Isaiah that the Messiah would open blind eyes, bring prisoners out of the dungeons, and that those who dwell in darkness would be freed from prison. Jesus not only fulfilled the scriptures and the prophecies made about him by the prophets beforehand, but he does so to show them who he was. He clearly demonstrates to the watching crowd and more importantly to his own disciples that he is God in the flesh. Ironically, as we have seen many times in the past, those closest to him, or as the text says, those who were leading the way were sternly telling Bartimaeus to shut up. Be quiet. And what did Bartimaeus do? He kept crying out the more, Son of David! Son of David! Have mercy on me! The Greek words tell us that his plea, his cry is amplified. It goes from shouting to screaming, Have mercy on me! (coughs) And what do the disciples do? They tell him to be quiet. Shut up! Can't you see you're bothering the master? This shouldn't surprise us. Remember when the parents of the children came to Jesus looking for his blessing? What did the disciples do? Go away! You're bothering the Lord. Remember when the woman with an issue of blood came to Jesus for healing? What did they tell her? Go away. Come back some other time. So it is today. Many will hinder those who have troubles and needs from coming to the Lord Jesus Christ for help because they don't fit their paradigm. Here we find a cry of desperation coming from Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus cries out even louder to Christ after they tell him to be quiet. He calls him, Son of David, have mercy on me. Unfortunately, Luke doesn't explain to us what Bartimaeus expected Jesus to do. All we know is that he's a desperate man who's seizing this one opportunity that he believes the Messiah is walking by him to receive help. By the way, this is the only time in the gospel that an individual calls Jesus by his messianic title, the son of David. Now in verse 40, Jesus acts upon the man's cry, despite the opposition of those around him. It says in verse 40 that Jesus stops. He stops dead in his tracks. And he commands that Bartimaeus be brought to him. And when he comes near, Jesus questions him. I want you to get the import of this now. Here, the God of the universe, the one who created all that is seen, visible and invisible, stops dead in his tracks and commands that this nobody, this worthless blind man be brought to him so he can ask him a question. And the Lord's question We find in verse 41, simple, directly to the point, what do you want me to do for you? I wonder what 
A how, better said. I wonder how we would answer that question if the Lord asked us. Doesn't Bartimaeus know that he's God? Doesn't he know that Jesus know that this blind man wants to be set free of his blindness? How would we answer that question from Jesus? Oh, gee, Jesus, what do I want? Could you give me the lottery numbers? Could you make my children successful and happy? Could you give me a pain-free life? What is it that you would ask Jesus for if he asked you that question? What is it that you really want? How would you respond? Obviously, we're not blind. So we don't have the physical issue of blindness to ask Christ to heal. But maybe you've suffered with cancer or some other terrible disease. Maybe you'd ask God to heal your body. Maybe you'd ask the Lord to heal your body. I don't know what I'd ask him for, to be honest with you. I'd need time to think about it. But this man knew instantly what he wanted. We see, no pun intended, the blind man's request when he says to the Lord, Lord, I want to regain my sight. Now remember, this man had spent the greater part of his life as a worthless beggar, excluded from society, his needs being met only by the money that was given to him. Worse, there was no possible cure for him. And he asked Jesus for the one thing that he would really want. Now get this, to regain his sight. That tells us that this man knew what he had lost. He had at one time did have sight because he's regaining what he had lost. I love the open question, though, that Jesus asked him, what do you want? Jesus knew. So why does he ask him this? I don't know. Maybe he wanted to see into the heart of Bartimaeus. But Bartimaeus answers, Lord, I want to see again. We find the Lord's answer in verse 42. Jesus says to him, Receive your sight, your faith has made you well. Notice there's no hocus pocus here. There's no slapping the uh, individual on the head, no falling backwards or any of that nonsense that we see from the phony healers today. Jesus literally uses one word. The Greek word is anablepo, which means see. In context, we write, regain your sight. But it was with one word only that Jesus does his miraculous work. The one word is followed by an enigmatic phrase, however, that has confused many people for ages. It, some people make it say something or sound like something that Jesus never intended it to say. The phrase, your faith has made you well. What does that mean? You are made well by your faith. Did Bartimaeus have to work up enough faith for Jesus to heal him? Was this healing because he had the right kind of faith or the right quantity of faith? The phrase, however, contains two important Greek words that show us its true meaning. So if you have your Greek glasses, would you take those out and put them on so we can look at this? Okay. The first word that we interpret as faith is the Greek pistis. 
The word pistis means to hold a conviction or belief. In this case, I believe the blind man's convinced. He was convinced that Jesus was who he said he was and he could do what he said he could do. He was the promised Messiah. Who? Isaiah 61 said and 47 said would give sight to the blind. This phrase does not insinuate in any way that this man's faith possessed some kind of magical power. Rather, it's stating that his faith was in Christ as the Messiah. Bartimaeus believed that Jesus could, as the Messiah, heal him. Secondly, in order to understand this phrase, your faith has made you well, we need to see this next Greek word, which is sozo, which is interpreted as made you well, or, or it can be translated as save, salvation, or deliverance. Now, it's important to keep in mind that Bartimaeus lived under the old economy, the old paradigm. He was under the law, okay? And the word sozo is always used in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, as a word to mean physical deliverance. And I believe that's how it's being used here. Jesus physically delivers Bartimaeus from his blind condition. The Messiah saves him, if you will, from blindness. Jesus made him well of his physical abnormality. He'd been delivered from a life of unworthiness and misery to a life of freedom and worship. It's clear then that Luke is making a comparison here between the physical blindness of Bartimaeus and the spiritual blindness of Israel and at this point, his disciples, for they did not believe the gospel. By performing this miracle, Jesus shows he can cure blindness, particularly the blindness of Israel and the blindness of his disciples. Now look with me at the result in verse 43. The results of Jesus' action are stated immediately, not 10 minutes, not a half an hour, but immediately he regained his sight and he began following and glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. <clears throat> now, some have asserted wrongly that Bartimus was saved because he praised God and glorified him. Well, I just go back up a few verses and I argue that the disciples were not even saved in the way that we think of it. They were believers in the Messiah just as this man was under the old economy. You see, let me prove that for you. How do you use the word saved? Saved is a past tense action. For example, I was saved from death by a fellow soldier who jumped on a grenade. That's using it of a past action that occurred in time and space. We are saved today by an event that happened 2,000 years ago, but, but the disciples and uh, Bartimaeus were looking towards a future event, even though it was just a few weeks away. They were not saved. They were believers in the Messiah and the promises of God in the Old Testament. So, Bartimaeus was a believer in Jesus as the Messiah, and he glorified God, he praised God because of what Christ had done for him. Bartimaeus had been saved from a life of blindness when he regained his sight. Yes, he was a believer in Christ as the Messiah, 
but his beliefs looked forward and anticipated what Christ would do at Calvary. There, Jesus would crush the head of Satan, and he would be bruised on his heel. Certainly, this passage has deep soteriological meaning to it and points to Jesus as the anticipated Savior of mankind. For Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. But Barnabas' faith in Christ was as the Messiah, not as the Savior as we understand him today. Now, if the nation of Israel had simply expressed this same kind of faith in Christ as the Messiah, their faith would have healed them from their spiritual blindness and they would have understood what was God what God was doing in and through him there is also great christological emphasis in this text for Jesus is not only called the son of man specifically a title found in Daniel but he's also called by the messianic title son of David this underscores his prophetic messianic personhood as promised by the old testament prophets Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. Jesus was and is David's son and the hoped-for Messiah. But Israel rejects him as the king. If they had only cried out to him in mercy, if they had only cried out to him, he would have healed them of their spiritual blindness, but clearly that did not happen. The Lord could not respond to cries that are never made. Instead, what do they call Jesus? Beelzebub, the devil, the evil one. So how do we apply this text to our lives today? As believers in Jesus Christ, we too suffer spiritual blindness. We should be asking the Lord for his mercy and for his healing. If we are blind, we should expect Jesus to heal our spiritual blindness. I believe that we need to recognize, first off, that we are blind in some ways. We all know we have blind spots, that we wander away from Jesus into darkness. We should walk in the light rather than the darkness, right? And in doing so, we must first recognize our problem. It's not that we're lost. It's that we need to be delivered from the world, the flesh, and the devil, which takes us captives to those worldly, vain philosophies that cause blindness. We need our spiritual eyes opened once again so that we can recognize how we are living blind to God's will in our life. Once we do so, then we should cry out louder and louder like Bartimaeus for his mercy upon us. We should plead for the mercy of God, as Titus 3.5 states. He saved us not on the basis of our deeds and righteousness, but according to his mercy. Our Lord is merciful. Our Lord wants to deliver us from distress and bring us comfort. Let me remind you of the Apostle Paul wrote about how we should walk in the light rather than in the darkness. He said, there is no temptation that can overtake you that is common to man. Know that God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond all that you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you may endure it. Open your spiritual eyes to the situations you find yourselves in and know that God is working in your life and that he desires to show you mercy. He will give you a way of escape or give you the ability to endure it. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we thank you for the promises of the word. We thank you, Lord, that we know the Savior, the one who came, who lived a perfect life, who died a death, not for him, not for his own sins, but for ours, and that he conquered sin, death, and the grave, rising on the third day to ascend to his Father. Help us, Lord, to trust. Help us to have open eyes to the truth. Help us, Father, to walk in the light. Help us, Lord, to live godly in this present world as we look forward to the return of our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.